Welcome to Workforce Rx with Futuro Health, where future-focused leaders in education, workforce development, and healthcare explore new innovations and approaches. I'm your host, Bonton Quinlivan, CEO of Futuro Health. Nearly all of the issues we talk about on this podcast that relate to improving healthcare, from reducing racial inequities to increasing access to home care services and many others, depend on solving workforce problems. That's why it's safe to say my guest today, Rick Brooks, has his hands full. As Director of Healthcare Workforce Transformation in Rhode Island's Executive Office of Health and Human Services. Boy, that's a long title there for your business card, Rick. In that role, Rick has responsibility for developing plans, policies, programs, and partnerships that align healthcare workforce education and training with the needs of healthcare providers and the state's health system transformation goals. Rick has spent more than 30 years as a labored educator, advocate, and organizer, including roles leading the state's largest healthcare union and the governor's workforce board. So I'm looking forward to getting his richly informed views on these issues. Thanks for joining us today, Rick. Thanks so much. Looking forward to our conversation. Delighted to have you. And so let's get started by having you set the table and give us a general sense of the healthcare workforce challenges in Rhode Island right now and which challenges presenting the bigger problem. Sure. Um, where to start? There are many, and I don't think Rhode Island is all that unique in that regard. If I had to uh, reduce it to a single word, I guess I would say shortages. I often talk as well about the, the need for greater workforce capacity and greater workforce diversity. And that's across all settings and all occupations. There's a lot of reasons for the workforce challenges that we have and the shortages that we're facing. And it boils down to recruitment and retention. Um, and people often associated with the pandemic, but really the pandemic just exacerbated what we were already um, dealing with and what was coming down the tracks towards us. You know, the first piece is really working conditions. It's uh, not easy working in healthcare. Um, the pressure, the physically and emotional toll that the work takes on, on workers at all in all roles uh, creates a lot of burnout, and that in turn leads to um, high rates of turnover. In addition, in, in many roles, the, the jobs can be dangerous. Certainly during the pandemic, there were increased risks of infectious disease. Um, the hours are often um, undesirable or unpredictable. Many healthcare jobs, of course, require folks to work uh, all three shifts and weekends, and that's often a challenge for working parents. And that was even more the case during the pandemic as well, when uh, students were not able to attend school and, and were home, and just balancing work and family became even more difficult. And as we know, that led to what we now refer to as the great resignation and folks who were perhaps uh, getting close to retirement, accelerated their plans a bit. And others who maybe were new to the field or thinking about the healthcare field maybe thought again and took a look at it and said, you know, um, in some of the jobs, particularly the unlicensed or, you know, paraprofessional roles, the wages and benefits are not great. There's not a great deal of respect and recognition. The advancement opportunities are often limited. And even for the uh, licensed health professionals, there were a lot of issues around and are a lot of issues around reimbursement rates, compensation, particularly for those 
providers who serve uh, Medicaid beneficiaries, very high caseloads, burdens and paperwork, all those things that have combined to cause people to either leave the field or not enter the field at the rates that um, we need them. Um, and then in addition, there are some general labor market trends. We talk about the great resignation, but there's also really structural shortages at this point due to the just the population boom and bust. So we've seen people aging out of the workforce and uh, not being replaced in the same numbers that they're leaving. It's a tight labor market. Unemployment in Rhode Island is around 3%. That's historically low. And that means workers have a lot of choices. Um, and again, you know, particularly in the lower wage uh, healthcare occupations, people are thinking twice and thinking about work-life balance, as I said, and and other opportunities outside of the healthcare field. So, um, and then one other challenge, of course, is that to fix these uh, issues requires money. During the pandemic, with the CARES Act and then the uh, American Rescue Plan, there was a lot of money that came into states um, that has largely been used here in Rhode Island, I'd say most places, for one-time fixes. And that's understandable because it was one-time money. So a lot of money got put into trying to stop the bleeding, uh, encourage folks to stay in their jobs with retention bonuses and other incentives. There were hiring incentives as well in many cases and other ways that the funds were used to try to reward and recognize people who were working through the pandemic and working in healthcare. Uh, but those funds are starting to dry up and the pressure is returning to state budgets uh, to you know, pick up the slack. And certainly in Rhode Island, that's a real challenge. There are many, many uh, areas that are going to be uh, strained as pandemic dollars disappear. And that translates in healthcare into challenges to compete with other states and other sectors besides healthcare uh, for, for employment and, and careers. So that's some of the challenges that we're facing. Well, that's an excellent overview of the challenges being faced by Rhode Island. But as you mentioned, it's also shared by many other uh, states or most other states. I'm wondering, in your perspective, is is there a light at the end of the tunnel? Uh, what practices in Rhode Island and strategies in Rhode Island um, is holding the most promise for you at this moment? Sure. Well, I think I'd like to tell you a bit about the statewide initiative that we've undertaken here um, and have been doing actively for the last at least a uh, year and a half, because back in the early, very early part of 2022, as all these challenges that I was just describing were mounting, um, the pressure on healthcare providers to hire staff, keep staff, provide timely quality services to folks who desperately needed them was becoming almost insurmountable. And naturally, uh, the elected officials, the state agencies that fund, oversee, support uh, providers were likewise feeling the, the need to respond to those um, pressures that providers were facing. And so we at, at the Office of Health and Human Services took the initiative to reach out to initially to partners in state government, in particular, our office of the post-secondary commissioner, which is our higher education agency and our Department of Labor and Training 
because those are the two workforce training agencies, and we bring the health and human services uh, perspective. And we approached them and said, this is everybody's challenge. This is everybody's um, responsibility. Let's pull together a process, put together a process and bring together partners from the private sector and see what we can do. And with the governor's blessings, of course, we uh, reached out to all sorts of private sector partners, ranging from healthcare, direct healthcare provider agencies to higher education institutions, community-based organizations that do training, adult education, advocacy, trade associations, professional associations, labor unions, insurers, pretty much any organization that has a connection to healthcare um, responded. We reached out and they responded because it was such a huge issue and it was people were looking for an opportunity to get together and both share their frustration, but also more importantly, work on solutions. Um, so we started that effort in the spring of 2022. Since that time, we've had over 500 individuals participate in, in our planning work and over from 160 plus organizations. That by Rhode Island standards is a lot. And we set out to um, tackle both short-term issues that we felt like we could make a, a difference on relatively quickly and also recognize that there were longer-term systemic challenges that we couldn't do overnight, but that we, we would begin to uh, identify and tackle as well. And I would say those those initiatives fell into a few broad categories. Um, one was focused on career pipelines and pathways. Another was higher education partnerships. Another was data. And then in the longer term, of course, we knew we were looking at the potential of uh, needing additional budgetary or policy or statutory changes that would require you know, the General Assembly's support as well as the governor's. Um, so some examples of the initiatives that we've worked on, and then I'll perhaps get into more detail about some of them. But in the world of higher education, we've been looking at ways to expand and promote access to loan repay, health professional loan repayment programs, also expanding clinical placement opportunities. As you know, health professional students need to get hands-on clinical experience, and that can be a real challenge for schools to find the placement sites and for the placement sites to be able to support students, especially when um, they're strapped, especially in community-based settings where staffing is um, lean, they don't have a dedicated teaching staff, they have to pull folks away from patients at times uh, to provide supervision or precepting for students, and that creates financial and other pressures on those agencies. In the area of career pipelines and pathways, we've been doing a lot of work, uh, ranging from some social media and other activities focused on increasing awareness of healthcare job and career opportunities, reaching out to students, reaching out to folks who are um, maybe new to the country, new to the workforce, to encourage folks to consider jobs and careers in healthcare. Uh, we've partnered in particular with career and technical high schools and, and bringing them together with agency, healthcare agencies to make those connections for their students to learn about career opportunities and get the training that they, they would need. Uh, we're doing a lot around pre-employment training. We're supporting our Department of Labor and Training to do um, 
well, free employment training, but also career ladder development, apprenticeship programs, continuing education for folks that are already in the workforce, but maybe at the entry levels. We're also supporting something called the Welcome Back Center, which is an initiative, you're familiar with it. Uh, if we have one in Rhode Island, there are a number around the country. Ours had been dormant for a while, but this is a program that supports foreign trained health professionals to get through the recredentialing process, in some cases, the English language proficiency and other um, maybe educational uh, components that they need to obtain a license and be able to work in their, in their chosen profession. Um, we've also entered into a partnership with our Office of Post-Secondary Commissioner using uh, ARPA funds uh, to, to create what we call a health professional equity initiative. And that is specifically focused on supporting paraprofessionals uh, working in home and community-based services, which is a, a, you know, a, a section of healthcare that is um, these particular funds require to focus on that particular part of healthcare, essentially to increase the capacity of home and community-based service agencies to enable uh, individuals to receive their supports and services in the home, in home and community settings and not in institutional settings. Well, there's an entire workforce of um, relatively low paid direct care workers, paraprofessionals who don't hold professional licenses and are disproportionately people of color, unlike the licensed occupations, which are disproportionately not people of color. Um, and so we set out to create this health professional equity initiative, which is um, providing significant tuition assistance as well as an array of other supports for uh, paraprofessionals to return to school to get a higher education degree in a health profession and obtain their license. So that's been in, in the works for about 15 months and um, we have over 100 people in that, in that program. We're also looking at regulatory reforms and working with partners in, in the private sector to identify um, ways to um, remove regulatory barriers to education and, and employment. I'll talk a little bit more about that later, but that could be requ requirements for training, for testing, for credentialing, scope of work, those sorts of things. Uh, we've also made major inroads in increasing our data capacity. So until this past year, we did not have a very good handle in Rhode Island on just how many licensed, we knew how many licensed professionals we had, but we didn't know anything more about them really. We didn't know if they were working in Rhode Island, where they were working in Rhode Island. We didn't know much about, if anything, about their demographics. We didn't know about their earnings. We didn't know how many were going out of state or working in other settings besides healthcare. And we created a data sharing agreement between our Department of Health's licensure division and what we call here in Rhode Island our, our data ecosystem, which brings in lots of different data sources from other agencies, more than 20 different data sources, including our Department of Labor uh, wage records, as well as a number of sources that have good demographic data. And we were able to do the magic of data matching uh, to be able to have a much better picture of uh, who is in our workforce and where our gaps are. Uh, and lastly, in the past six months, we've developed some of the budgetary and policy initiatives that will require 
uh, legislative action and governor support, and those are just getting under, will be getting underway in the next month, in the coming year. It's a lot. Well, Rick, you've been busy, and uh, my head is uh, on fire with a set of follow-on questions. So uh, first, I wanted to say congratulations on getting 160 organizations involved in this initiative. Uh, I, I'm very curious about the insurers that you mentioned. What was the conversation like to bring insurers and payers to the table? Yeah, well, um, in some settings, um, insurers are quite concerned. For example, speaking of home and community-based services, um, some of our insurers, especially the, the managed care organizations, are concerned because they bear some risk if individuals who could be cared for in community settings are compelled to go into institutional settings or can't be transferred out of institutional settings uh, when ready because of a because of workforce shortages. Because, for example, our home care agencies don't have sufficient staff, just to use that example. Or if we don't have um, enough community-based behavioral health services, which winds up causing people to, you know, land in the ERs or be um, hospitalized again when they may not need to be. So from just the perspective of cost uh, avoidance, those are issues that are of concern to uh, insurers, to payers. Another follow-on question, Rick, you talked about loan repayment programs. Um, I'm on the California Healthcare Workforce Education and Training Council, and we're looking at restructuring financial aid. And I'm wondering if, how are you rethinking loan repayment programs over in Rhode Island? Yeah, there's been a number of approaches. I mean, the most basic approach is simply to uh, add state funds into the pool of state loan repayment uh, resources, because currently there are no general revenue funds going into that pool. The funding is only from private sector, so from insurers and from our major state foundation, philanthropic foundation. So that's step one to get a state uh, allocation to that if possible. Um, there are some other proposals out there uh, from advocates to create state funding for scholarships, which is a, which is different from loan repayment, as you know, because it's sort of the front end as opposed to the back end support. Um, we also have a, a unique tax credit program here called the Wavemaker Fellowship, which was originally started to um, encourage recent college graduates to work in Rhode Island who had training in primarily uh, STEM occupations, but that was expanded a year or two ago to uh, include healthcare occupations of all sorts. So that is yet another uh, approach. And then, of course, on everyone's mind are clinical slots, which is the bane of everybody's existence. Did you have any cr creative uh, strategies for increasing clinical slots? Well, there's been a lot of conversation and a number of different ideas bounced around. Again, there is an advocacy organization that um, works closely with primary care providers that has been very vocal about the um, costs that are incurred by community-based providers when they take in a student to supervise. And of course, there, there are disparities amongst different occupations and schools. Some schools and some uh, professional programs are able to pay providers for clinical placement sites, and others are not. 
and most of our public uh, programs are not able to pay providers, and that puts them at a disadvantage. And of course, those are the same programs from which we have the highest retention rates. So our state community college and university um, graduate folks who are more likely to stay in Rhode Island, keep working in Rhode Island, and yet they don't have the resources in most cases to pay for clinical sites. So there is a proposal to uh, try to find some public funds to to support clinical placements. You mentioned in your remarks that there's a concentration of uh, diversity in certain areas of healthcare workforce, and they tend to be the lower paid ones, and then not much so in other sets of occupations. So given that diversity in the healthcare workforce is a key priority of the executive office of the, of health and human services, what do you think are the biggest barriers to achieving this level of inclusivity that you're, you're, you're hoping? Yeah. I mean, the, the barriers are numerous. I'm sorry to say, I mean, you know, disparities exist at all levels and in all components of society, you know, it's quite systemic. Um, and very ingrained, and we need very, very proactive initiatives at all levels of education and workforce. I think we need potential healthcare workers, whether there's youth or, or adults. We need to have direct outreach, new messages, new models, new mentors that encourage all potential healthcare worker students and workers to see themselves in new roles and to be encouraged and supported to aspire to the to roles that they might not have imagined. And we need to have the supports in place to make that possible. So we need tuition assistance. We need that outreach. We need mentors. We need role models. We need culture change in our schools and in our workplaces that, like I said, send the message that everybody can do this. Everybody will be supported to do this. And these are not jobs or pathways just for you know, one ethnicity or, or race. That requires a sustained commitment and a, a genuine commitment. Not easy. Not easy. Well, Rick, you and I met at the National Governors Association convening. Um, I am curious, what's the situation in Rhode Island for your governor and your state legislature uh, specific to the mental and behavioral health workforce shortages. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that and any policy wish list. Well, um, I did mention the loan repayment that we're hoping for funds for that, as well as some of the advocates that are you know, looking for other ways to support clinical placements, particularly for behavioral health and primary care as well. Um, there have been a number of rate reviews undertaken in the, in the past uh, six months. There's been a general awareness that Rhode Island's rates, uh, both Medicaid and commercial rates, are not competitive with our neighboring states. And um, we have in Rhode Island an office of the health insurance commissioner. I think we may be unique in the country in that. And um, that office was charged with doing a rate review of behavioral health and a number of other uh, services. And they did issue a report a couple of months or so ago that acknowledged some very significant rate um, shortfalls or disparities. And so that will be a major focus, uh, I'm sure, of um, the, the budget deliberations over the next legislative session. 
we're also um, trying to create and hoping for support for a career additional career ladder initiative sort of based on the the initiative that I was describing that we have at this health professional equity initiative but to broaden it so that it isn't limited just to home and community-based services and also make it more systemic in its approach so that it would encourage and almost require perhaps partnerships between uh, employers, partnerships between employers and schools, partnerships among schools to create some system changes that really would facilitate advancement from paraprofessional to licensed occupations. So Rick, knowing all that you know about what's going on in, in healthcare and all of its shifts and changes and pressures, let's say you were advising your niece or nephew on the labor market and how to prepare for the world of work. Can you identify any skill sets that are in demand now or will be in the future? Like what guidance would you give, Rick? Sure. Well, for starters, I would say healthcare is changing. The world is changing. Health systems are changing. Um, And whether folks are um, looking to become a licensed clinician or some other role that might not require a license, I think there are some common things that are going to be increasingly important, are already important and will continue to be increasingly important. So there really is and needs to be increasingly a, a focus and an awareness of the role of social determinants of health, first of all, that, you know, medicine historically has focused on treating disease um, very episodically. Somebody gets sick, they come in, they get a medication or whatever, or a procedure, they go home, they get sick again, that continues to happen. We're less set up to, to um, address the underlying reasons that folks get sick. And we know that Many of the reasons that people become ill or have chronic diseases um, are not due to their their lack of access to health care or their access to health care, what kind of health care they have, but rather to all sorts of other social factors like their housing, their, their nutrition, their lifestyle, their genetics, um, risks in, and in, in, in the communities that they live in, all sorts of things like that. And of course, poverty more than anything. Um, so increasingly, healthcare providers are, I think, compelled, especially as they are paid differently, paid not just for um, every service that they provide, so volume-based, but rather value-based, where they're paid for outcomes. Um, healthcare providers and and or organizations of healthcare providers are coming to see that they need to pay attention to those underlying causes of illness because otherwise they will bear a portion of those costs. And so it's actually a win-win if they take a different approach. Population-wise, we will have healthier people and we will also um, hopefully be able to control our costs better. Um, So that means for somebody entering the workforce, they need to be aware of um, the, the role of social determinants of health. They need to um, also be aware of what value-based payments are and, and providing care that is focused on wellness and prevention rather than just volume of care. Um, we need to have more people going into the workforce at all levels of, of um, the, the ladder 
who have lived experience, who are diverse culturally, linguistically, uh, racially, that can relate to the populations that they serve. And that means jobs like community health workers, I mean, specific jobs that do that, that do that navigation, that do that advocacy uh, for patients, for clients, our community health workers, peer recovery specialists, um, but increasingly across all occupations, that's an essential skill set and knowledge set, whether you're a case manager, a social worker, other kind of behavioral health professional, or uh, a nurse or a physician, anybody who has direct uh, interaction with patients. So you mentioned value-based care and its outcomes, attention to social determinants of, of health going upstream. Your career has included um, tenure in the labor movement with labor unions. I'm, I'm curious, how do the uh, unions receive these principles, these concepts that, that you've just laid out? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And I would say it depends. Um, I think healthcare unions, like many unions, uh, their first priority is to address the immediate needs of their members. And that tends to be contract focused, you know, negotiations focused, grievance focused, working condition focused. However, I will say, and certainly in, in my role as a healthcare union leader, I understood, and I think most healthcare unions do understand that it's not the same as representing workers who work for a supermarket or truck drivers. Uh, we're talking about work and a mission that impacts people's lives in very direct ways. And the quality of work, and this is where I think the opportunity comes in for healthcare worker unions, healthcare unions, that the there's a there's a shared interest, a mutual interest between patients and healthcare workers, if there's a consciousness to to find that shared interest. So as I know you know in California, the, the nurses unions out there are very vocal about staffing levels. Um, staffing ratios and the like, particularly in hospitals, but also um, training and education and professionalizing the jobs that their members do. And I think that's um, something that is not only beneficial to the members, but also to the, to the patients that they provide care and services for. So that's where I think there is an intersection. In my experience, healthcare unions have been a little less focused on um, workforce development, particularly for those who are not in the workforce. Continuing education and professional development for their members is, is something that some healthcare unions focus on, but some have not been as focused on the needs of people who are not yet in the healthcare workforce. Some are, however, and as I think you know, in, in, in my former union, we partnered with the two largest healthcare systems in Rhode Island we partnered with another union. We partnered with a couple of major community-based organizations that provide adult literacy services, uh, particularly to um, immigrant populations. And we put together a program called Stepping Up. And there was a lot of mutual self-interest there, as well as a lot of vision and passion to do the right thing. So um, we were able to bring the hospital systems uh, into partnership with the unions because the hospitals at that time, not unlike now, were facing significant nursing shortages and were spending a fortune on travel nurses, bringing travel nurses from around the country. Again, not so different. 
um, and also spending a fortune on overtime, both voluntary and mandatory overtime. That mandatory overtime was extremely unpopular with uh, uh, union members, as you would imagine. And so were travelers who were receiving far more money, or at least their co companies were receiving far more money. So nobody liked uh, travelers, neither the union nor the employers, and nobody liked uh, forced overtime. And at the same time, uh, we were well aware that there were folks in the community who, with the right supports, could be filling these jobs and, and folks within our, our own ranks. Um, and the hospital, quite frankly, didn't have the best image with the community that it sat within and knocked down a lot of homes and over the years to put up buildings and parking lots. And so um, they joined with us and we created the Stepping Up program and we partnered with two community-based organizations and we, we developed this approach that was to move folks into uh, the entry-level jobs and move folks up from those entry-level jobs. We brought classes onto the hospital campuses as well as the college campuses. So um, that's the kind of thing we're sort of still looking to do. And I would say, add one other thing, the um, state is also more aware of and sensitive to working with um, unions. And I would say more broadly, one of the things that I see happening, and I think this is sort of exciting, is that, um, like they say, uh, never waste a good crisis. And um, certainly we have a crisis, a workforce crisis. And, and one of the benefits that's coming out of that, oddly, not that I would wish to have this crisis, is that strange bedfellows are coming together. So we have hospitals, we actually have an effort that is just in, in discussion right now, but I can tell you that there are some discussions going on between the, the healthcare unions and the hospital association, looking at ways to partner around healthcare workforce development. There are partnerships happening between schools, higher education programs that um, you know have traditionally viewed each other as competitors, uh, considering articulation agreements, even the academic and the non-academic sides of the house within the same higher education institutions, which have historically not necessarily collaborated very well, are recognizing the need to develop agreements that grant credits for non-credit activities. Um, on the regulatory side, I mentioned trying to address licensure barriers to licensure and to education. Um, we're seeing our licensure boards more open to rethinking the education requirements for nursing faculty, for example, or uh, get more creative about um, ways that folks can um, get, folks who were farm trained uh, health professionals can get recredentialed in this, in this country or in our state. Being more open to online uh, training and testing or maybe even testing in languages other, other than English. In fact, a, an interesting example I heard just yesterday, I'll share with you, conversation with the Welcome Back Center talking about how in Massachusetts they have a program uh, and policy that allows foreign trained dentists to get experience in FQHCs, Federally Qualified Health Centers, um, with supervision from dentists. And if they meet the, the those requirements, those experiential and supervision requirements, they don't have to return to a full dental uh, program as they would otherwise have had to do, and as they have to do in Rhode Island. So we're going to explore the possibility of bringing something like that into Rhode Island. So 
I think that, you know, because of the, the, the crisis, there is more creativity and more willingness to um, be innovative. Well, that's a good advice to never waste a crisis, <laughs> unlocking all sorts of creativity and and especially that welcome back uh, for dentists. I know that the average debt of a dental school graduate is $240,000. So the accelerated path that you're talking about is certainly welcome to um, fill some of those hard to find roles. So Rick, let me um, end with the question of what makes you optimistic about the future of care. Yeah, I think um, what makes me optimistic is the level of engagement, for sure. There's tremendous interest, uh, consensus around the fact that we have real problems, and I think some consensus around uh, solutions. The Strange Bedfellows, the new partnerships, I think is really encouraging. And I would say in particular um, to me, and this may be more aspirational, but I, I'm still motivated by it, um, is the, the increased recognition of the importance of career ladders. And, you know, career ladders for us, I, I think of it in a number of different ways. I mean, one is bringing people into the workforce. And I talked a little bit about partnerships with with career and technical programs and other uh, programs that are pre-employment. And then uh, career ladders within occupations and from occupations. And by that, I mean, oftentimes we, we say, oh, well, a CNA, a nursing assistant, the next step on the ladder for them is to become a nurse. And, you know, we know that that's a very large leap and it's a great thing when it happens, but there need to be ladders with rungs that are uh, more achievable, closer together. And that means um, career ladders that enable people to stay within their field. They might be a nursing assistant. They might be a medical assistant. They might be a case manager and where they can become a level one, two or three with corresponding uh, skills, training, credentials, compensation, responsibilities, etc., so that folks can grow within those occupations, don't leave as readily as they do now, where we have high, very high turnover in those occupations. And then also, yes, ladders with the right supports for folks to um, continue on to obtain a professional degree, like a registered nurse or like a social worker, for example, on the behavioral health side. So. Those are, I think, encouraging developments. We're seeing progress. We're seeing partnership. And I think we can you know, make something out of this crisis. Thank you very much, Rick Brooks, for joining us today. We learned a lot about what's going on in Rhode Island and your thinking uh, and learnings that could be applied everywhere else. Good. Well, thank you for the opportunity to talk with you. I appreciate it. Absolutely. I'm Vontone Quinlivan with Futura Health. Thanks for checking out this episode of Workforce Rx. I hope you will join us again as we continue to explore how to create a future-focused workforce in America. Mm -hmm.